everyone, Mel here with another episode of The Weekly Watch. And on today's menu, we have The Girl on the Train and Bloodfather. Yes, Mel Gibson is back in the cinema. But before I start talking about these two films, um, I want to have a quick chat about what I've been watching on TV this week. Um, and if you are someone who's been listening to the last few episodes, you know that I always talk about pitch. And this week is not going to be an exception. Um, again, Pitch had a great episode this week. Um, I can't say enough about how awesome the show is. Um, I just want to quickly um, tell you what, what I really liked about it. Um, I mean, Ginny Baker, you know, as we all know, she's like the first female baseball player in the MLB. Big, big whoop, you know, it, it is a big whoop. But her her mum comes to town in this week's episode. And we, we know that they have a bit of an estranged relationship. And through flashbacks we see why that is and I really I really really loved seeing their their relationship change um, you know sort of deteriorate and then kind of come around maybe not full circle not yet you know everything is you know it's it's in the works uh, but it was it was really good really good episode so Ginny's mom's supposed to come into town um, they were supposed to spend uh, a few days together because they haven't seen each other for a while Obviously, Ginny's really busy with her career, um, but what happens is that on, I think it's a weekend that this is uh, taking place at, uh, the MLB All-Star Game is on. And weirdly enough, Ginny, even though it's her first season, she just started playing in the MLB, she is by popular vote um, added to the All-Star lineup, uh, which a lot of people are surprised by. Um, I mean, not least her, but obviously it's it's the chance of a lifetime to do something like that and she kind of feels uncomfortable she's like I'm not really I can't be an all-star I just started working here you know just imagine you know showing up for work you've you've worked there for a month and all of a sudden everyone makes you employee of the year you're like uh what that's kind of what's happening there um like I said I don't really know much about baseball but it sounds like it's 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 a bit like um American football you know how you have the NFL and the AFL and they each uh, league gets their all-stars together and then they have have a match you know and uh, the MLB seems to be doing the, the same thing and McBeardy was supposed to be on that all-star team he's he apparently always is you know he's a really great guy great player um, but he's having you know health issues so he can't play um, really interesting um, stuff happening with McBeardy this episode as well. He's not really a character that I liked previously. I mean, he was alright. But in this episode, I really started warming up to the guy. So, Ginny's doing the All-Star game. Um, after trying to talk to her coach, saying that she doesn't really want to do it. And her coach, and he's really another guy, just like McBeardy. I'm really warming up to him. He gives her like this whole reminiscing of when he was younger and he was trying to ask out his current wife. Um, his current wife sounds like he had several. He was trying to ask out his wife and he was, you know, he didn't have much of game and, and she wasn't really going to go for it. And she basically turned him down and he hobbled away because he had, I think he had like a knee injury or, or something happened to him. Maybe, maybe it was a war. I think it was after after the war and 
she took pity on him because she saw him hobble away. So she said yes to the dinner invitation anyway. Um, and they had dinner and they had a lovely dinner and he's been married to her for over 40 years. They have a lot of kids and even more grandchildren. And Ginny's like, why are you telling me this story? And he's, and he's like, come on, girl. It's, it, it was a pity date, but that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter why you get the date. It just matters that you take this opportunity and you make the most of it. I've been married to the most wonderful woman for over 40 years because of that. So you think that people put you in the All-Star League out of, out of pity or, or just because you're the only girl? It doesn't matter why they put you there. Take the opportunity and make the best of it. So then Ginny obviously decides to do that. And her mom comes in and her reaction is not that great. Obviously, she's like, oh, wow, you're on the all-star team. But yeah, that means that we can't spend the weekend together. And her mom's like, oh, all right, okay, cool. Uh, Amelia and her assistant, that, that, that charming Asian guy, they're there. And uh, Elliot, I think is his name. And Ginny just goes like, well, you get hang out with Elliot. And it's like, oh, Elliot likes that, you know. El Elliot says pretty much, it's like, mm, Elliot is, is excited. But her mom goes like, oh, yeah, I'm really excited to hang out with Elliot. <laughs> and, and Elliot's like, oh, oh, that was sarcasm. Okay, never mind. It was kind of cute. So, yeah, they're, they're not having the, the bestest of starts into, you know, the, the relationship that we see on screen. And all the while we see flashbacks to, you know, when Ginny was younger and, you know, her dad was still alive and he was training her, you know, with the baseball and everything. And we also see that she had a really good relationship with her mother. You know, they, they were doing, you know, insinuated they were doing each other's hair and nail polish. And I think they were talking about, um, they were talking about getting Ginny's ears pierced. You know, even though her dad wouldn't want to like it, but it's, it's like mom and daughter. Yeah, we're gonna do it. You know, uh, it, it was a bit of a bit of a mission for the two to, you know, re really have some fun there. And it all kind of, it all kind of boils down to um, Ginny wants to go to a school dance, and, and her mom comes in and is like, "Oh, I got you this dress," and Ginny's all excited, and her dad walks past and he's like, "What's going on here?" And she's like, "Da, that's my that's my dress for the school dance tomorrow." And all her dad goes, "Tomorrow." tomorrow and now you're not going tomorrow the all-stars are in we're gonna have to do this you know you and it all boils down to little Ginny I think she's like 13 14 years old she has to decide between going to the school dance or and and you know doing the things she wants to do with her mum or going to the all-star game with her dad because her dad thinks that's really important um, and she sides with her dad because Michael Beach is a very overpowering person. Um, you know, he's perfect as her dad. He's, he's so driven and, and powerful and really intimidating that it makes sense why Ginny would, would do what her dad wants her to do. And she has this really heartfelt scene with her mom. How she, she's like, I'm so sorry, mom. And her mom's like, don't you worry. You know, if all of this gets too much for you, sweetheart, you just tell me because I will make this stop. You just tell me, sweetheart, okay? Um, it's a powerful scene. It makes me all, all emotional just thinking about it. And she decides, obviously, to do the baseball stuff. Um, she, she comes home early from school one day and she, sees, she walks into the house and she sees her mom 
with a different guy. And it turns out it's the guy that in the present, when her mom comes to visit her at the Padres, that guy seems to be her mom's new boyfriend. You know, and it's just like, what the hell is going on? And ever since then, Ginny was like, oh my god, my mom's cheating on my dad. Their relationship pretty much got fucked up. Ever since then, she didn't want anything to do with her mom. Everything was about her dad. And um, it, yeah, it makes, it makes perfect sense. They never talked about it. Ginny never confronted her mother about it. So these things were just like hovering above them for like 10 years. And now her mother's in town. Obviously her dad is dead um, in, in the present. Uh, he died in the, in the car accident. And her mom's like, well, we're gonna, we're gonna have dinner. That's the only thing that Ginny really has time for throughout the entire weekend, a dinner. And it turns out that her mother is going to bring some, uh, a guest, is going to bring a boyfriend. Amelia is going to be there because Ginny didn't want to go to dinner by herself. And then I think she asks McBeardy, yeah, Ginny asks McBeardy if he wants to come to dinner as well because her mom is in town. And so everyone's congregating in this restaurant. Ginny shows up, meets her mom. Her mom introduces a guy as her new boyfriend. And Ginny's like, boyfriend? And it's the same guy that Ginny sees in the flashback, you know, who's been, who she thought that her mom was having a, an affair with. Amelia shows up, McBeardy shows up. They stare at each other going like, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? I was invited. Well, I was invited too. And it's like, oh, well, that's going to be interesting. And it is. That dinner scene is so well done. And you you kind of have Amelia and McBeardy in couple mode and Amelia's mom's boyfriend even mentions it's like oh so how long have you guys been a couple and everyone goes alarm bells ringing we 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 it's like oh no we're not a couple we're so not a couple we've we we've met once like we hardly know each other you know it's really kind of darling and they start like having a chat about everything and her mom, Jeannie's uh, mom, is, is basically saying that she's been dating this guy for a year and this is the first time that she she's telling Ginny and Ginny goes like, for a year? It's like, you haven't just got together in like the last two or three months, but you've been dating him for a year? And only now are you telling me this? So the entire table is like having, the, you know, the time of their lives. And uh, Ami uh, Amelia's mom, Ginny's mom, goes like, yeah, he's a huge baseball fan. He's a fan of yours. You know, with the All-Star game tomorrow, I was wondering if you can give him a ticket. And, and Ginny's like, well, I'm sorry, mom, but I only got the one ticket for you. I'm, I'm sorry. And then McBeardy, you know, being the cute little idiot that he is, goes like, oh, don't worry. You know, I've got tickets that no one's using. I can I can hook you up. And the camera immediately cuts to the two, two girls, um, Ginny and Amelia, and they both give him this look. Like, you know, when someone goes like, you said something really inappropriate or stupid and, and everyone's heads just go turns in your direction goes whoo, whoo, and the look on their faces and he's like what did I just not that he says it but you can tell it's like what did I do I was being nice and it's just absolutely hilarious the way this all works together and obviously you know it's a powder keg and it explodes and Ginny's like oh I can't deal with this right now I'm leaving and then Ginny's mom and the boyfriend goes like, oh yeah, don't worry, we're gonna have an early night and they're leaving. Leaving only Amelia and McBeardy at, at the table and they're just going like, having a bit of bit of a heart-to-heart -heart about how McBeardy is not doing very well. 
because of his health and he was trying to, you know, once he ends his baseball career, he's going to be working in broadcasting, sports broadcasting, because obviously he has a lot of expertise in baseball. And he he did that. I think he did like a test run because uh, he's going to be on the broadcasting team for the All-Star All-Star uh, match because he's not playing. And his test run for that was horrendous. And Amelia seen it or heard about it. And they start talking about it. And it's just those guys, even though they're saying they're not a couple, but they're such a couple. They're kind of cute. I know I didn't really want her, her to get um, to, to, to get along with him and, you know, get on with him. And I'm just like, mm. didn't really like him at first. But I really like those two together and their dynamic together. And they're just absolutely cute. And they, they just talk about everything and they're like, and after about, I don't know, half a minute, they're like, you know, do you, do you think they staged this meltdown so we'd end up with the bill? You know, Ginny invited them, but they ended up paying for the entire meal. It was kind of hilarious. I really, really liked this episode. There was a lot of drama, you know, Ginny and her mom and all the flashbacks. Um, Mike Beach is just amazing as her dad. Uh, I'm glad that he keeps coming back. I was kind of worried that, at, you know, at the end of the first episode, when you find out that he actually he actually died in that car accident um, and that she imagined him being there, it, it was... I mean, I've seen Sixth Sense and it fooled me when it came out, when it was in cinemas. I was like, no way! And that was kind of the thing that happened in that first episode as well. Um, but I'm glad he's back every now and then. Um, because he's he's a very powerful presence. I really, really like him. And, I mean, obviously, we all know how much I like Ellie Larder as Amelia. Uh, now, McBeardy, he's he's turning into this cute, awesome little fluff ball. And the coach is, is getting him brilliant. And, obviously, Ginny is just amazing. Everyone, like, this, this entire series is so well cast. Everyone is really putting on performances of their lifetime you know they're, they're so powerful they're so they're so subtle and honest it's just it's a joy to watch it and it does it does it really well how it goes from drama and tragedy into comedic bits and then back again and I'm, I'm kind of starting to like the game of baseball I, I never really cared about baseball but now that I'm watching it on a weekly basis it's really really it's really cute you know it's it's really cool i kind of like it i'm i still don't think i would ever be a fan of it because it can take hours and hours and hours like what 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 is it like nine innings and sometimes it can go to 11 innings and it's just oh it takes forever and oh i i just i i, I don't understand it but the more i watch it the more i understand it and i think that's really cool that a tv show kind of instills that in me that i'm starting to understand why people love this sport it's it's really cool anyway i think you need to watch pitch if you don't do it already you really need to watch it i have been talking about this every single week since it aired you know since it started every single week the episode has been amazing you need to go and watch it now i've started watching a new show called van helsing um, I've caught up on it. I think we're on episode... Yeah, we're episode 5 now. Um, caught up on it really quickly because someone mentioned it on Twitter. And it's really, really good. I was surprised. Because, um, I mean, I like vampire stories. I love Van Helsing. You know, I like Bram Stoker's Dracula. I like anything to do, really, with, with vampires and Dracula. Other than the Twilight series. Because, no. 
you know, vampires sparkling in the sun. No, that's too much for me. That is like, I don't need pussified versions of vampires. Thank you very much. Um, but Van Helsing's really interesting because it's a different approach to that old story. It doesn't really have anything to do with Dracula or or Van Helsing the way that we know it. Um, it's it's kind of post-apocalyptic. Something happens in the world. Um, I think it's uh, a volcano erupts, and there's so much ash that it covers up the sun. Um, basically, you know that the same scenario that they say is like if if we ever have like a nuclear holocaust, you know, all all the the shit that goes into the atmosphere all the particles will block out the sun so much that we will have another ice age I mean we're supposed to have another ice age anyways but global warming yay um, so Van Helsing it's post-apocalyptic because the sun is sort of diminished or blocked out vampires come out of the shadows all of a sudden they can roam our cities during daylight because of the ash cloud and that's a really interesting premise. Now, like I said, we've only had five episodes, so I'm not I'm not entirely sure how many different vampires there are, because the the first episode kind of starts with Vanessa Van Helsing, who's the lead of the show. She she's lying on on a slab in a hospital, unconscious, and a soldier is protecting her, saying that she's special. And through the course of several episodes, we we find out, you know, that the ash cloud happened, that that's why the vampire came out, and the vampire kind of spread his vampiric disease, like the zombie plague, pretty much. And now it's three years later, roughly, and everyone outside is pretty much a vampire. There are hardly any humans left. There are a few pockets a few resistances somewhere but overall it's it's just like you know in the zombie apocalypse the world is just littered with walkers this time it's littered with vampires and the really interesting thing about this this show i mean i love post-apocalyptic shows i mean i love the walking dead fear the walking dead i love the hundred you know stuff like that i really i have an affinity for post-apocalyptic stories really really love that stuff so Van Helsing, obviously, I was destined to kind of like it. First of all, you you have a female lead. She is she is the the lead. She she is the named lead of the show, and she she seems to be quite kick-ass. I'm not entirely sure whether she has some martial arts background or why she's really really strong, really capable. It's, it's really weird. But in the last few episodes, we learned obviously she you know she wakes up out of her unconscious state. And it turns out that when she, when a vampire bites her, there's something in her blood that makes them turn back into humans. Which obviously is, is really interesting. Um, but one of the things that I thought was really weird about the show is like, you know how you're used to, you know, vampires with their two fangs and they bite you in the neck and then suck out their blood and that's it. But these vampires, they do it more like the zombies. They literally, like, it's it's almost like they rip out half your throat just to eat you. You know, um, it's a bit weird. It, it does feel like a zombie show, even though it's supposed to be vampires. I'm not sure why they had to do it like that. 
to have more dead people. I don't know. It's really weird. But in one of the episodes, we find out how the vampiric disease spread. So the, I think we're yeah. The the show seems to be set in Seattle. I think I've seen the Space Needle, um, and the vampire comes out of out of the darkness. You know, out of hiding, and he was like, "Oh my God! I can walk! I can walk during daylight! I can walk the Earth again!" And of course he does. I mean, who wouldn't? And he just. Of, of course he's hungry and he just randomly starts biting people everyone that comes across him and it doesn't take them even like a minute or two and they turn into a vampire or, or a vampire similar creature and immediately starts attacking the next innocent victim so it's like this exponential um, disease spread that you have and three years later, it looks like the entire world is just covered in that. And it's, it's really interesting just to see how, how everything just starts, starts happening. You know, every episode, the first few episodes is like you, you get to know the doctor who is in a cage. He, she seems to have turned into vampire. And the soldier who is protecting Vanessa is feeding her blood. And you're like, why are you doing this? Oh, we find out this is the doctor he used to, to work with. We find out how she ends up being Manessa's doctor, how she ends up being stuck in that hospital with the soldier. Those so-called flashback episodes, they're not even really flashbacks. It's just like, we're going to tell you what happened. And also seeing Vanessa before everything happened. She has a daughter called Dylan, which is the sole reason that, you know, she's trying to, she's trying to find her. She woke up and she's like, where's my daughter? Because for her, those three years obviously haven't passed. She got attacked in her home by a vampire um, because she had donated blood mere hours before. And a vampire had stolen that blood, among other you know, blood packs he stole from the hospital. He'd eaten it and he turned back into a human, went back to his vampire master and delivered the blood and then everyone's like you're a human again what's going on so they find out who Vanessa is where she lives the vampire goes there attacks her seemingly kills her her daughter finds her um, she ends up in the hospital because the morgue um, at the coroner's office is overrun with dead bodies so so clearly um, the apocalypse has already started to happen because of the ash cloud and the doctor finds out that there's something special about Vanessa. It's like she, her blood work. It, she, she doesn't have you know the rigor th that sets in when when people die. Um, she's still. It, she basically looks like her body is is working as if she was still alive, but she's clearly dead. And it also turns out that all the blood that's on her, the doctor washes it off. He's like, what? Well, I mean, all this blood, but where are the wounds? The wounds closed. She she was bitten on the neck really, really horribly. And that had closed. It's like, what's going on? And then obviously three years passed um, and there will probably be a lot more flashbacks where we find out a lot of stuff that happened throughout those three years, I assume. But it's just really interesting that for whatever reason, there's just something very special about her. And that also makes me think that her daughter, assuming it's her biological daughter, has to be special too they share this well they share dna so 
there must be something very special about her daughter as well because everyone keeps telling Manessa that I'm sorry but there's it's been three years there's no way that Dylan will have survived this and after Vanessa ventures outside the hospital which is a bit of a fortress now she she sees what's happened to the world and she agrees that I don't think that Dylan would have been able to survive any of this and every episode kind of gives you a bit more insight into what's been happening um, in the past that obviously we didn't see Vanessa didn't see and what might have happened to Dylan there, there's a, a neighbor who was Vanessa's best friend who kind of got knocked around by her boyfriend and then Vanessa steps in and you know she's really powerful and she kind of knocks the boyfriend around and I'm like wow she's kind of like a she's kind of like Jessica Jones you know she's a bit of a bit of a superhero like stepping in it's like I'm not standing for you beating down my friend um, it doesn't look like she has any superpowers or, or mega strength or something but she clearly is very very capable and it looks like she does this all the time because um, her daughter goes and is like, Mom, don't get involved. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, this happens all the time. So it's really interesting just to see, it's like, where where is Dylan? You know, if she's Vanessa's daughter, so there must be something special about her blood as well, I would assume. Um, the really interesting thing about it was in the last episode, it was the second to last, whatever it was, um, there was a... Vanessa was fighting with a vampire. She got abducted by the vampires because obviously they realized the special one has arisen and we need her, we want her. The vampires are kind of scared of her, but the vampire leader, can't remember his name now, ah, a big ass vampire, he wants her, so they catch her. And then a vampire volunteers to, you know, try her or fight her or whatever it is just to see whether the what, what they heard about her blood is is true whether it turns you back and it turns out that the little vampire who's gonna fight her is her former best friend you know that she saved from the boyfriend but she she'd been turned and they fight and at the end of it all um, Vanessa ends up biting the vampire not the other way around so instead, obviously the vampire wanted her blood and Vanessa d didn't want to give it, but Vanessa bit her and that had the same effect. It cured the vampire, turned the person back into a person. So it's clearly not her blood because, you know, her spit. So it, it must be something in her DNA that turns them back. So I assume Dylan has the same thing, which I, which is one of the reasons I assume that her daughter's still around. Anyways. You know, Vanessa's special, Vanessa seems to be the cure to vampirism. It's really, really awesome, this show. Um, the, the group in the hospital, it used to just be Vanessa, the vampiric doctor and the soldier. More and more people are coming in the latest, in the last, can't talk, in the latest episode, um, a new group showed up that Vanessa and the black kid saved and they kind of made a coup and got rid of the other group because the soldier obviously didn't trust them and they the, the new group kind of didn't trust them and you know yada yada it's, it's like in the walking dead there's like too many groups too many leaders coming together no one really trusts each other um our old group in the hospital they kind of had someone murdered as well so they are living with a murderer amongst themselves and they don't know who it is and then the new group finds that out and it's just like we're taking over you guys are going to be in the cage because one of you is a murderer and we don't know who you are 
So we're going to be talking about this. We can't take any chances. So there's a lot of shit that's happening in the show. A lot of stuff is happening. I love it. There's there's great action. It, it's quite a bit gory as well. Some of the stuff is a bit silly and stupid. But so far, also the way it's told, um, that it, it shows you stuff from the past, but does it in, in a really great way. It's almost like it's showing you a different perspective of things. You know, it's not doing it like in Fear the Walking Dead, where it's like, oh yeah, here's, here's a flashback. Oh, and here's a flashback. It's like, oh, whatever. Ooh. But on this show, I think in the second episode, th there's an episode where they kind of tell it from the vampire's point of view. And then there's an episode where they tell it from the doctor's point of view, with like the army coming in and stuff. It's, it's just really well done. It's very well structured. The, the characters are great. Um, the performances are really cool. And I'm really, really intrigued to see what's going to happen next. So I think you should watch it. Like if you like, maybe not if you like vampire stories because it's not your typical vampire story. But if you like post-apocalyptic um, settings, if you like any of the the zombie TV shows, I think you would like this as well. If you like the romanticized vampire version, I don't think the show's for you because that's not what it is. But it's really really cool. And with that, last but not least, Westworld. I assume you're already watching Westworld because everyone is watching Westworld. Westworld is like the new Game of Thrones. Second episode, fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Some of the hosts are starting to remember, well, dream of stuff. You know, it's, it's not just Evan Rachel Wood's character now, um, the, the leader of the prostitutes. She's remembering stuff, it was kind of her episode. And all the while while this was happening, I, w I was wondering, all the stuff that they remember, it, it's like memory flashes, like it, when you have partial amnesia or something and, and memories come back to you after you've blacked out or whatever. So I'm wondering if their personalities, their memories, if they're based on real people. Like it's, I think it's been confirmed, um, that the hosts actually are hosts, they're androids, they're not real people. But it feels like maybe, maybe it's like a memory transfer, you know? Like the people that come into Westworld, they, they have to, they have to um, sign a disclaimer and everything that they leave in Westworld, like their DNA and stuff, is then owned by the Westworld company. So everyone has to sign that, there's no way around it. So I'm, I'm wondering if, you know, the, the guys at Westworld, they're just scooping all of that up and maybe imprinting parts of personalities or maybe whole personalities into their robots. And that is what these dreams and, and memory flashes are. So I'm not sure if, if, if they're actually something that the robot went through or if it's something maybe that the human host went through. Um, that's just a theory of mine. Um, whether they're actually remembering what happened to the people they're based on, you know. So Westworld gets to keep everything, basically everything that's in the park belongs to them. Bit scary, but it makes, for my theory, <laughs> it makes perfect sense because, you know, I'm sure the Westworld attraction is just a front for like 
um, like a more serious or sinister project in regards to androids and memory and maybe cloning and potentially something like eternal life so I I mean coming into Westworld is really expensive and we're not just talking about a few few thousand dollars we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars so people must be very wealthy who come in there so Westworld makes a lot of money I mean it must also cost a lot of money obviously to to run all of that but they make a lot of money so the owners of Westworld, assuming that's Hopkins and maybe a few other people that we've not seen before, they make a lot of money off this and they get DNA from all kinds of people that they then can do with as they please. You know, and this funds their research, the research they're actually interested in because they're not interested in a theme park, they're interested in something else. I really think that Westworld, the theme park, is just a front for something that they're actually after, you know, and it provides them with test subjects and material, which is perfect. You know, th there's definitely something happening behind the scenes. And that's one of the things I love about the show as well. Is like that's where, you know, the man in black comes in because we find out more about him and the creator, you know, played by Anthony Hopkins. We really need to find out what this maze is and what it leads to and what Hopkins is trying to achieve with Westworld because he's he's working on a new attraction and one of his employees was was working on a new attraction and, and made a really big hoopla in, in the control room and go like this is that, this is the story, these are the clones, the, the, these are the androids that we're going to be using and Anthony Hopkins just like no literally that's what he says like no and because he has his own attraction in mind that he wants to do but I I really really love this show it's, it's just there's so much happening and some questions are answered but not really but by the end of the episode you feel like someone just dumped an entire lorry full of new questions all over you you're drowning in them but it's fantastic you know you learn so much about it and yet it's more like what about this what about that what about that what about what, what was this about so I can't wait to see what, what's happening next I'm I'm really, really interested in the man in black. It feels like it's the man in black versus Anthony Hopkins. That's that's kind of like my impression at the moment of Westworld. Everyone else is just like caught in the middle. Um, I mean, we've we've had some new um, we've had some new guests this week, which was interesting because they managed to show us what actually happens once you arrive in Westworld. You know how you how they figure out what kind of experience they want to tailor to you and how you're gonna enter the world and how you're gonna look and everything that you pick in your style room has an impact on your experience it's kind of like um, when you play a video game and you create your character usually the looks don't necessarily matter as much but you know, like in, in Skyrim or something, when you when you play as a particular species and you go to certain areas in the game, the populace of that area will have um, will have a positive, negative or neutral reaction to you because of your race, because of your looks. And I thought that was really interesting. And Westworld kind of does the same thing. It's like when he had to choose between the light hat 
and the black hat and I'm like take the black hat take the black hat only a douche takes the white and it turns out that the black hat means that you're a bit more of a sinister person and the white hat means you're the hero and I was like oh what's that say about me well I always play villains who you know that's that's just who I am villains are more interesting that's why I love the man in black he, I feel like he is me in the show like I he, he is definitely the, the audience trying to figure out what's going on. You know, this guy's been doing this for 30 years. He knows this in and out. He's looking for that secret level, like in a video game, you know, like the cow level in Diablo or something. And I really, really love that. I'm, I'm intrigued by it. I mean, I love video games anyway, so I think this is really tailored to me. And I love shows like Lost and you know other things where it's like oh what's gonna happen next oh there's a mystery we kind of solved it but not really and now we have 50 million additional questions which we need to solve and it's just like ah drives me insane but i'm also like i can't stop you know like i can't stop playing i can't stop watching i have to know more um it's it's gonna be fantastic absolutely so the the new episode's coming out um in a few days i'm really psyched I'm so glad that we get it just like um, a day later in, in the UK, just like we, we do with The Walking Dead. Oh yeah, speaking of The Walking Dead, everyone remember Walking Dead will be back October 24th. Well, October 24th in the UK. So set your calendar, set your alarm, set your everything. You know, I'm scheduling my classes around this. It's like, I can't do Monday evening classes. The Walking Dead is on and everyone was just chuckling. And I was like, I've got my priorities, right? You know, just saying. All right, that was my week. In TV. Now, onto the movies. Right, I watched Girl on the Train and Bloodfather. So let's talk about my absolute favorite this week, which is Girl on the Train. I know a lot of people will disagree because it's got very mixed reviews, but I really like this film from start to finish because of Emily Blunt. She's fantastic. Alright, so Girl on the Train is kind of a mystery thriller you know um, it's been directed by uh, Tate Taylor and it's based on a book by the same name Girl on the Train um, I've never read the book um, I, I tend to not do that anyways but the film stars Emily Blunt she gives the performance of a lifetime she's fantastic we have Rebecca Ferguson the entire film I was like I know this woman I know this woman I know this woman at the end through the credits I'm like no way and my friend, she's like, oh my god, Rebecca Ferguson. It's like, yes, that was Rebecca Ferguson. She's really versatile. She really disappears into a role. The entire film was like, who is that woman? Who's that woman? Great. And we have Hayley Bennett. So Emily Blunt, Rebecca Ferguson and Hayley Bennett are playing the three main females in, in the film. We also have Justin Theroux, Luke Evans and Alison Jenny in it. So you probably already know this from the trailer, but... We have Rachel, who's played by Emily Blunt, and she gets involved in a missing person's case, thanks to her seeing the person from the train she always rides. And it's really weird because it turns out that Rachel sees a lot of stuff from that train all the time. You know, she's she's at a bit of bit of a low point in her life. You know, she's divorced. Um, she's divorced from her husband Tom who's played by Theroux and he is married again to Anna who's played by Ferguson and they have a kid together so Tom and Anna are really happy and he just wants to forget about Rachel you know all, all that past life 
He's happy with Anna and he doesn't want anything to do with anyone else. They used to live on the train or near the train tracks, which is why Emily Blunt always stares into people's houses, because she also stares at Tom and Anna with their kid. Because that is kind of what she wanted with Tom. You know, looking into other people's homes and lives seems to be the only thing that keeps Rachel going. You know, she she takes the train to New York all the time. The entire train journey, she she's just staring into houses and, and, and looks at, at people and wishes that one of them was her. And one of those um, people that she looks at is Megan. Not that she knows that person's name, but we as a viewer, we know Megan, played by Bennett. Um, and she seems to be in a really happy and cutesy marriage or, or relationship um, with Scott, who's played by Luke Evans. And they seem to have it all. They're the cute couple in a pretty house and they're all over each other. And it's, it's, it's everything that Rachel always wanted. But as we always know, ev not everything is what it appears. So turns out that every time Rachel's on the train, pretty much every time we see Rachel, it seems to be standard in her life, she's drunk. Like really fucking pissed. And she's always like that. You know, she, she blacks out, that, that happens to her all the time, it's pretty much a standard of hers. And she blames her drinking problems for the problems that she had with her husband Tom. And she blames it for um, why he divorced her and and all of that jazz. She, she's always seemed to have a drinking problem and she blames this for, for all the problems that she has in her life. Yet she never seems to try and get rid of this issue until a bit later in, in the film. The interesting bit is that she she blacks out quite regularly from just being too drunk. Tom would always, you know, get her home and he knows what she's like and he would take care of her and he would be telling her everything that she missed because she wouldn't remember anything because she blacked out. So he would tell her what, what had happened. Um, so he's a really like supportive husband and she is just a mess and that is why we think that they got divorced and then one day um, while, while she's riding the train Rachel sees Megan kissing another man not Scott and that really <laughs> infuriates her she's like how can you do this to Scott uh, not that she knows any of their names but how can you do this and he's the perfect man and you have the perfect marriage why are you throwing it away so she drunk again she is going to confront Megan so she gets off the train and she's approaching that house and then something happens and she blacks out again and she wakes up covered in blood and then hears that Megan is missing so she's like oh my god Megan's missing did the entire film you're like oh my god did, did Emily Blunt kill her did, did Rachel kill her did Rachel did something to Megan and that's when the police gets involved you know Alice and Jenny playing the detective and Rachel kind of makes it her mission to find out what actually happened to Megan and that's that's basically the entire film we're trying to find out what happened to Megan so this is your usual whodunit story you know can people's accounts of events be trusted though and especially Rachel always being drunk can we actually trust a blacking out drunk narrator who experiences lost time 
As I mentioned, I've never read the book. Uh, I prefer not knowing where anything goes, so and I hate spoilers. And I was completely enthralled in in that mystery, you know, making up my own theories as the story unraveled. You know, it is just like, oh, what about it? What about that? And obviously changing my theories the entire time because, you know, not, it, it, the story is nothing you've never seen before. You know, we, we've seen we've seen films like this 50 million times before, but the way it's edited together and the story is told and j just Emily Blunt's brilliant performance. I mean, the, the entire cast is really great and the performances are great, but Emily Blunt, uh, wow, I was glued to my seat from start to finish. She had my attention the first time I set eyes on her. And I was just like her, I was trying to unravel what had happened to Megan. It was really, really good. Um, now, I know a lot of people were like, oh, it's very predictable. And I'm usually one who, who shouts that stuff out because I, I hate it when things are predictable. But in this film, there were things happening I didn't see coming. And I was really surprised by that because I usually predict pretty much everything. So for me, it's a very pleasant surprise if that doesn't happen to me. I really, really like that. Now. It's a murder mystery and obviously, you know, you see it on TV all the time, you know, in procedurals and stuff like that, but it's, it's all Emily Blunt. You know, I, I think the film sinks or swims with her performance. What do you think of her performance? To me, it was brilliant. You know, she like I said, she captures your attention from the first time that you see her. She's so subtle and she, it's just the, the ease with which she she seems to portray this broken but determined woman, Rachel. You know, it just blew my mind. I think that Emily Blunt's performance in this film is reason enough to watch this film. It doesn't matter what you think of, of mystery, thriller, uh, crime-solving films, whether you like those kinds of things, it really doesn't matter. It's just Emily Blunt's performance of Rachel is what made the entire film work for me. I mean, none of the characters in this film, and that includes Rachel, are likable. None of the characters in this film are likable. Everyone, even though they look like they're perfect and we find out that they're not because, you know, everyone has their issues. That should kind of make them relatable because we all have our issues. And yet I, I felt like there was a bit of a, a bit of a disconnect between the audience and the characters, I didn't feel like we were portrayed in the film, the audience was portrayed in the film as one particular character, because usually the hero, well I'm doing air quotes, the so-called hero um, in the film kind of takes the role of the audience, the surrogate for the audience. And obviously Rachel was supposed to kind of be that, because she's the one who's really intrigued and she's the one who wants to solve this mystery more so than the police. Um, so she's kind of the surrogate for the audience, but then she is such a mess, you know, with, with her blackouts and and her constant drunkenness. And it, it's just, she, yeah, she's just a mess and, and not in a good way. Like, I, I don't relate to her at all. And I'm pretty sure that not a lot of people in the audience do. And yet I think she's the most relatable of the entire bunch because she's the one who's actually trying to solve this murder mystery. But she's not trying to solve it because she wants to find out what happened to Megan. She's trying to solve it because she is for the entire film afraid 
that she herself has done something to Megan. I think that that to me was the main gist of the film. That Emily Blunt, well, that Rachel is, is really afraid that in her drunken stupor she's done something. I mean, the, the way that the story is told, you know, it's, it's like it's chipping away at masks. It's giving you information bit by bit. We find out stuff like it's like puzzle pieces here and there and you just put it all together and that to me is already a really interesting thing I mean I like puzzles so I like murder mysteries or I like mysteries in general <laughs> no one has to be murdered but it's just a really weird thing and my friend mentioned it after the film was over how unlikable all the characters were and when she said that I was really surprised because that even though I didn't really relate to any of the characters that never bothered me while I was watching the film and it never even occurred to me that someone might be having an issue with that. I always felt myself as an outside spectator and in a film like this I think it doesn't bother me because it feels like you know when you watch um, when you watch like a documentary like um, ah, what's that oh, what's that murder documentary on Netflix that everyone was going on about a few months ago with this guy who's been wrongfully accused has been in prison and he was let out and then um god i can't can't think of it now that's really bad it was a really good like 10 part series i think on netflix about a wrongfully accused guy and then there was an, he was accused of something else after he was freed from prison after 18 years yeah it, it was a really really powerful series and i'm so sorry i'm blanking on the title of this but that's kind of what it reminded me of because it's a documentary obviously everything no matter you know even a documentary usually is not very objective there's a certain point of view you want to bring across as the filmmaker your point of view so that's kind of what I felt like in in Girl on the Train as well even though obviously it's a work of fiction it's not a documentary but when it comes to something like that like solving a mystery I always feel like the external spectator I don't need to feel like I am identifying with one of the characters and maybe I'm alone in thinking of it like that you know which is fine but I know that from a lot of other reviews that people stuff that people were saying about the film is the characters are so unlikable which makes them unrelatable everything's very cold and I was like that doesn't put on me because for me it was like a puzzle piece and it was a lovely cake of puzzles and a cherry on top was Emily Blunt's performance. That's kind of what it was for me. Now just as a as a slight warning for anyone who's you know thinking of watching this and I assume a lot of people are thinking of watching this it's a huge not, not a blockbuster but the girl on the train everyone's talking about it right everyone's aware that it's coming out in cinemas or that it is in cinemas and that it's it's a title that people are aware of. So near the end the film gets a bit gruesome just as an example, someone ends up with a corkscrew in the neck and then someone else keeps screwing that corkscrew deeper and deeper. I think this is the most gruesome one that there was in the film, but that kind of gives you an idea of, you know, the end is a bit bit heavy when, when it comes to stuff like that. There are also a few sex scenes in the film, which I was told that were not in the book. It's debatable whether they were necessary in the film. In my opinion, they're not erotic. 
I found them all, every single one of them, I found them disturbing. Um, I've had a conversation with someone um, on Twitter who thought that they were erotic. Um, which I thought was really interesting because that was not the gist that I got. And I did check with a few other people and I was like, what did you think of the sex scenes? Did you think that they were erotic? Did you find them disturbing? Did you find them titillating? Everyone else said that they were not erotic, that they were more disturbing. But, you know, everyone has a right to their own opinion, obviously. This is mine. I didn't find the sex scenes erotic at all. They made me very uncomfortable. Not, not in a way that you're uncomfortable when you watch a sex scene and your parents are in the same room or something. But they, it's like they, they showed you the true character of the people having sex. Because it was more about being manipulative, being, it, it, the sex scenes were more of a power play and it was just, they were very, very disturbing. Immediately told you that what was up with the relationship between these people and the people themselves. It, and I think showing that in a, in a sex scene that takes like 30 seconds is so much easier than having a long scene and a lot of dialogue explain the same thing about a character. So for me, it worked. Those, th those scenes did tell me something about the characters involved. I didn't find um, the sex scenes bothersome or, or, or titillating. Some people might find them titillating. I can understand why someone would say that they are titillating. Because there are quite a few sex scenes. Some of them are very... Well, yeah, I mean, I found every single one of them disturbing, like I said. Um, they, they didn't bother me. They worked for me in the, in the gist of the film. Because pretty much the entire film is a bit disturbing. You know, and I think that's why I was really enthralled by it. I, I just... It, it's like you're watching a train wreck. You just couldn't look away. That's kind of what it was like. As a woman, I can say it didn't bother me. I mean, the goriness, uh, the gruesomeness of, of the some of the scenes near the end didn't bother me. But I'm not easily bothered by these kinds of things. But I'm aware that a lot of people might and a lot of people might find um, the sex scenes titillating and, and the gory gruesome scenes a bit too much. So just be aware that near the end stuff definitely amps up a bit. The, the end gets a bit like, huh, what's going on now? But that didn't detract from the film for me at all. I, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm really trying to put everything really vague here because I don't want to give away any spoilers. I think the trailer already spoiled enough, which is a bit of a nightmare. Um, I mean, I'm not going to start talking about how horrible trailers are nowadays. Overall, I really enjoyed the film. And I'm not sure if I would have enjoyed it as much if Emily Blunt hadn't been in it because her her performance is, is like that's that's the glue that keeps the film together that is why I couldn't stop watching it while I, why I was glued to my seat and while I was really with her the entire time no matter how much of a mess she was I was like we need to find out what what happened here and I mean I find actors performances always really important in a film obviously there wouldn't be a film without them but like some people can watch a VF VXF fest and, and love it. Even though the story is stupid and the characters are horrible and, and the actors are just, you know, alright. 
which can work, you know, in a popcorn flick or whatever. But for me, if I see a really great performance, that to me can be enough to watch the worst film there is. If this, if one performance is such a standout that really, that I connect with, that I, it's, it's like I, I, <laughs> I, I was kind of like worshipping Emily Blunt the entire time I was watching this film. It's, it's like watching a masterclass. She is just so there and so present and just so subtle. And it, it, I can't really find the right words to describe how amazing her performance is. You need to see it for yourself because you won't believe it. You know, n near, the, near the start of the film, there there is a scene where you are, where you as the audience, you're supposed to find out that she is always drunk. And you know, that she is drunk before they ever show the bottle. And I know this sounds stupid because a lot of people go, oh, playing drunk is so easy. But she's not an exaggerated drunk. She is a very subtle drunk. She's trying to hide it. She's trying to be normal. She's also not really walking around. She's sitting in a seat on the train and yet you realize that she is plastered. And I'm, I'm not giving it justice here seriously you need to see it for yourself and you will know exactly what I mean and this is just the start of it like there's there's so much later on the the stuff that she does it, everything is in her eyes and her voice it's, it's just it's magnificent I do hope that you know she gets some awards recognition for this because the film is not very good you know it's it's a decent flick but it's stuff that we've seen before you know it's nothing to write home about but Emily Blunt, she elevates this into, into amazingness. I don't think that without her, I would even be raving about this film as much as I am. And I know that it got mixed reviews and I know a lot of people are like, oh, I don't get it. This film is like, blah. Like, yeah, but don't worry about the film. What did you think of Emily Blunt? Did every single person goes, she was, she was bloody brilliant. And that to me is enough. If, if something like that is not enough for you, if you need the film to have a good story and likable characters, then I think Girl on the Train is not going to be for you. But if you want to see a groundbreaking performance by Emily Blunt, go and see it. I really, really loved it. She, she kept me going. You know, the, the film just feeds you like puzzle pieces here and there, and then gives you, the revelation at the end wasn't wasn't that great, but I was satisfied by it. I think they could have done it better. Like I said, I haven't read the book. Maybe it's like that in the book. My friend who I went um, who I went to the cinema with to see it, she'd read the book beforehand. And she said that she hardly got through it because the characters in the book were so unlikable. She just wanted them all to die. They were horrible. And in the film, they're a lot more likable than they are in the book, even though in the film, they're not very likable. So I, I don't think I, I could stand reading the book now. But it's an, it's an interesting film and the performances are great. I mean, I'm raving about Emily Blunt and, and, you know, deservedly so, but all the performances in the film are great. You know, Rebecca Ferguson and Hayley Bennett and yeah, Justin Theroux and Luke Evans and Alison Jenny, everyone's, I mean, they're solid performers and, and, and their performances are great. I think you just need to go and watch it. You won't regret it. I don't think. And from one brilliant performance, let's go to the Bloodfather. Because I have 
seen one of the most disconnected performances in all my life in the Godf uh, in the Godfather, <laughs> not the Godfather, in the Bloodfather. The Godfather is actually a really great film. So, the Bloodfather brings Mel Gibson back to the cinema. You know, it's an action thriller. It's also apparently based on a book of the same name and stars Mark Gibson, Aaron Moriarty as his uh, daughter Lydia, Diego Luna and William H. Macy is in this as well, which I was very surprised by. Love this guy. So we've got um, a guy called John, who's uh, played by Gibson, and he's an ex-con. He lives in a trailer park and works as a tattoo artist just, you know, to get by. He doesn't have a lot of money. He's, he's just barely, you know, edging out a living there. And then we have his estranged daughter, Lydia, who's played by Moriarty. And she she gets involved with a gang through her boyfriend, um, boyfriend Jonah, I think, who's played by Diego Luna. And, you know, she she kind of has to go on the run because she, <laughs> she sort of accidentally shoots her boyfriend. And weirdly enough, that doesn't really go over very well. And then basically her dad, you know, comes to the rescue as as the gang is is trying to you know get get rid of Lydia for the entire film, you know they they shoot up his trailer and then his William H Macy and, and the other rednecks who live there all you know get their shotguns out and and tell the gang to fuck off, which was kind of cool, but that obviously you know comes back to bite them in the ass. Let's just say that William H Macy does not live to see the end of the film, but basically the entire film turns into a bit of a road movie, you know with with tons of shootouts and and carnage and just yeah like great action that's basically what it is it's, it's kind of like think of the original mad max you know with with gibson and just don't call it mad max just call it bloodfather and that's it that's basically what you get and i really need to get it off my chest the first time we see gibson he delivers a monologue at, at some kind of an i don't know aa meeting ex-con meeting whatever he it looks like an aa meeting and the camera's just on, on him and he gives, like, it's a monologue, he goes on for a bit, he's detailing some really emotional stuff about his daughter and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And yet, Gibson just, he's just, he just seems to only be reading lines. He's just like, he's just reciting his goddamn lines. His eyes were totally cold totally disconnected the stuff that he was talking about i didn't see a single reaction on his face or in his eyes i did not believe a single word coming out of this guy's mouth it was horrible it was the most disconnected performance i've ever seen or maybe i'm just really primed towards that noticing that now but it's, it's just oh seeing that i was i don't believe anything you're saying you're just reading off a prompter there was no emotional connection to anything that he was talking about. And it was quite an emotional monologue. And like if someone did that, sent in a self-tape and tried to get the job, they would not get into the final round. It was horrible. So that annoyed the hell out of me. And I was like, oh my God, it's going to be that kind of a film. So I already had kind of low expectations, but this lowered my expectations even more. And I think that might explain why I why I didn't really consider the film a waste of time. I, I kind of enjoyed it on a really, really low bar, stupid, silly action kind of a film. I know a lot of people are raving about this film. I don't get it. It's, it's a decent flick. You can watch it, but there's really, 
nothing to go on about here. To be fair, Gibson's performance gets a lot better throughout the film, especially once you know you reach all the action parts, because that's clearly his thing, that's what he's good at. But I've never seen him this disconnected as I've seen him the first time you see him in this film, in that monologue section. I don't know what the hell was going on, and that presumably is the best take, because that's the take that made it into the film. I have no idea what the hell was going on there. Horrible. Absolutely horrible. You kind of need to watch it just to see that. It's that horrible. But yeah, once we get to the action parts, it gets a lot better. And Lydia, you know, his, his daughter, the actress, she's... I, I really liked her. She was the best part pretty much about the film. Because she, she kind of brought some, some fun and l levity and, and sarcasm into the film. It, otherwise, it's just like, yeah, it's a very, you know... It's a very checklisty kind of a film. We're doing this, we're doing that, and then this is happening, then there's a shootout, then we, we go on the road, and then there's a shootout, and then there's dialogue, and then we do this. It's just very, like, procedural. Really dry. And she, she injects some levity into it. You know, the action scenes are great. They're, they're quite gruesome as well, though. They're, they're, they're quite fun, if you like those kinds of things. But overall... I mean, I'm not really giving anything away when I go, it's like, well, they're going on the road and then shit happens and then they're going, they keep going on the road and there's a shootout and then some other shit happens and then someone else turns up who then kind of backstabs someone and then even more shit happens until finally we have this ginormous showdown at the end when stuff happens and explodes and I don't want to give away whether someone lives or dies, but that's pretty much it. That That's the film. I mean... You know, that's kind of the film that you're expecting. Judging by the trailer and stuff, it's a road movie with a lot of shootouts. It's a lone gunman, kind of like an ex-con. I mean, uh, Gibson's John, he is like a, a war veteran or something. That's, that explains why he's really good at what he does. Because otherwise it's like, what, just because he's a dad, he knows how to do all this shit? So he, he used to be a soldier. Um, he used to be apparently really good at what he does. And... Yeah, it's just, you know, it's, it's kind of like Rambo on the road trying to protect his daughter. That That's what the film is. And overall, I mean, it's like I said, it's very predictable. But none of that really matters. You know, people who want to see this film, they, they come here to see Mad Max. I mean, Bloodfather in action, you know. It, it's like, yeah, Gibson's back. They couldn't call it Mad Max 4. As a, I guess of rights issues so they call it Bloodfather it's based on a book anyways but it's basically Mad Max and Gibson's back and there's a lot of like brawling and shooting and I, I wanted to say swearing but I'm actually not sure if there was a lot of swearing but yeah it's it's the action the crazier the better and on that the film delivers and I think that is exactly what people want to see if they go and see the Bloodfather so no one else is going to mind anything else, so just go and see it if that is what you like. I thought it was it was a decent flick. Um, some things in there I liked. Uh, some bits of dialogue were surprisingly poignant. Um, th there's something about... Something about... Um, like, the, the whole relationship between John and Lydia is really well done. Like, Gibson and Moriarty really get along well in front of the camera, I think. And... That there's a there's a section I don't know why that stuck with me but they're, they're somewhere out on the road and they have this talk about how 
Gibson, oh, sorry, John, how John thinks that Eve obviously was white, and Lydia's like, well, Eve wasn't white. Do you think the Garden of Eden was in Norway or something? And I don't know why that stuck with me, but it, there are just certain bits and bobs in there that I didn't think would make it into a Mel Gibson film. And there, there's a lot of funny dialogue and quirky interactions between Gibson and Moriarty. And I think that's kind of also the, the lifeblood of the film. That's, that's what I really liked about it. I mean, you have the crazy action, which I think was very well done. But it's, it's stuff that you've seen before millions and millions of times as well. That seems to be the gist of the entire week. Two films, both based on books, and you've seen them before millions of times. Like with Girl on the Train, it was Emily Blunt's performance that makes the film stand out to me. Bloodfather, there's unfortunately nothing that makes it stand out to me. It's a decent action flick, but that's it. So if that's what you're after, go and see it. I would advise go and see Girl on the Train, not just because everyone's talking about this film, it's the water cooler thing at the moment. It's a film that's been hyped for months and months on end. I think you, you kind of owe it to yourself to watch it anyways, just because everyone is talking about it. Secondly, you should see why Emily Blunt is bloody fantastic in it. And third, you know, it's a mystery thriller. It's great having your own theory swirling in your head and then going like, oh no, no, okay, changing your theory again and changing it again and going like, no way, I did not see this coming. Maybe you don't have this experience when you go and see it. That was the experience that I had. I hope you will have that too because I thoroughly enjoyed The Girl on the Train. Not really The Bloodfather, but I think you can't go wrong with either of the films depending on, on what you like. If you like stupid silly action, go and see The Bloodfather. If you want to see really great performances and solve a murder mystery, go and see Girl on the Train. And if you don't care about either and you still want to watch, just go and see Girl on the Train. Just trust me. Just do it. You won't regret it. Alright, that was it for this time on the Weekly Watch. Next time, we will be talking about... We is me and all my other personalities. We'll be talking about Storks, the new animated film. Uh, I can't remember who it's by, <laughs> which is bad. Um, this is definitely a film that wasn't on my list um, until a few weeks ago because people were saying that it's really good. The trailer looks kind of stupid, but also kind of cute. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to it. I haven't seen an animated film in, in quite a while. I think the last one I watched was uh, Finding Dory. Um, so yeah, we're watching Storks and Inferno, the new Tom Hanks film. You know, the, the whatever 50 millionth installment after the Da Vinci Code. So should be a really, really good week for films. Um, as always, you can email me at weeklywatchcast all one word, weeklywatchcast, at gmail.com. Um, if there is a film that you want me to see and, and talk about, if there's a film or a TV show that you would like to talk to me about, with me about, you know, I'm, I'm always happy to have someone on the show and chat about a specific film or, or, or a TV show, um, get someone else's uh, point of view, especially if it's very different from mine. But, you know, if, if you want to chat about something, I'm more than happy to have someone on. So yeah, just uh, hit me up and I will see you next week. Until then, night night.